If you'll turn with me um, in your Bibles or electronic devices um, to Acts chapter 15, and um, we're going to be reading a sprinkling of verses in that chapter, so if you can follow along uh, in your Bible or also on the screens. Beginning in chapter 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things. Known from the old, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. This is the word of the Lord. I had a conversation a few years ago with a pastor where we were commenting together about how unique the Bible is in the way in which it doles out wisdom. Because if you think about it, whenever you come to the Bible with questions about what you're going through, rarely do we get what you might call a direct answer. Instead, the Bible tends to come to us in principles and ideas and then expects us to sort of work things out for ourselves. I I remind even, I think about my own life and the questions, really 90% of the big questions I face in my life are not answered directly in an explicit answer from the Bible. You know, who should I marry? What career should I choose? How many children should we have? How should we educate them? When should we retire, etc.? And this pastor was simply saying that one of the problems that we have 
is that we really want for the Bible oftentimes to be an answer book. You know, you'll find yourself being in a disagreement with someone and trying to figure out the next step or the big path to choose. And invariably, you'll have someone that'll start doing something that we call proof texting. Proof texting is when you pull a verse out of the Bible to demonstrate your point that has absolutely nothing to do with the actual context of the passage where that verse was written. Not only that, it's very easy for the other person to feel very manipulated when we start to talk that way because they intuitively sort of know that my question's a little more complicated than you're making it sound. And I think the reason for this is this, because the Bible actually is not an answer book for your life. The Bible is actually a wisdom book. It's not a list of to-dos in the Bible that if you'll follow these, it's a surefire four-step plan to a better life. It's rather a collection of stories and broad principles that are embedded in the gospel, but it expects that you and I are going to go through it on our own and that we're going to work our way through it, that we'll have to pray about it, that we'll have to connect with each other about it and depend on the Holy Spirit for guidance about it. <clears throat> I think this is so relevant today because we're getting through this study through the book of Acts that we call Jesus Continued because we want wisdom ourselves for what it looks like as this church to be a ministry in our community here in Oxford. And what we get in Acts chapter 15 is this remarkable test case for how to navigate the very complicated stress that arises in a church when people disagree. How do we do that? Now, the first thing though that we've got to get in our heads before we dive into that question is there's no option in the text to have no disagreements. That is not optional. Invariably, the conversations, when, when you have conversations about controversy and people not getting along, there'll be someone who will chime in and say, ah, why do we have to have all these arguments if we could just get rid of it all and go back to the peaceful New Testament church? Things would be great. Well, here's the deal. That church never existed, ever. And what we mean, though, is that if there's any good thing that is going to happen to a sinful group of people, it's just not going to happen without resistance, without anxiety, without confusion and lack of clarity, and, and, it, and without question, a need for humility. And so in these kind of seasons, when it gets so complicated, you suddenly find that there's two people that emerge. On the one hand, you've got people who just, for whatever reason, seem to love controversy. They love it. And strangely enough, they find it, making you always wonder a little bit if they're not the cause of it. On the other hand, you have people who absolutely dread controversy more than anything else in the world. And you see what happens over the years, and they can remain in churches with bad patterns in it. I've seen for decades. But when you seek the Bible for wisdom, it doesn't sort of take us out of the controversy as much as it gives us lessons on how to navigate through it, hopefully arriving at a godly end on the other side. And this is the Bible's pattern, that along the way, churches have found soundness in a pattern that's commended to us by this text. And so what I want to do is I want to look at three different principles this morning from Acts 15 that can give us some guides about how to deal with our own disagreements. First of all, we say we can't compromise on the gospel. Secondly, but compromise wherever you can. And then thirdly, we have to stay connected to Jesus' church. 
Okay, let's start with that first one. Don't compromise on the gospel. Look, set the stage here. Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey up into Antioch with these magnificent tales of God's provision. And the fact that all of these Gentiles, the non-Jewish believing people, are flooding within the church. Paul's first sermon we saw demonstrated clearly that the whole point of what God was doing was to include the Gentiles. He had all this Old Testament evidence to support his claim. Now, nothing about that was controversial. What was controversial was the realization by these Jewish Christians that when the Apostle Paul was talking about them being included, they didn't mean anything about what they meant when they talked about them being included. Because what these Jewish Christians understood the Gentiles to be coming into the church with was taking on Jewish cultural norms. In other words, they would take on Jewishness. Remember, these first converts were the God-fearers who had already learned to some degree to participate in what it was like to look Jewish in that early embrace of Christianity. But Paul comes back from his journey and he, finally, and he finds that there are some men who have come down from Jerusalem. By the way, don't let that throw you off. Antioch is north of Jerusalem on a map, but Jerusalem was up on a hill. And so everything was down from Jerusalem. That's what that verse means there. But they've come from the mother church, right? And they've come up to Antioch to set those liberals straight up there in Antioch who are doing things the wrong way. And they come in and they say, no, in order for you to really be a Christian, you've got to take on these Jewish cultural forms. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about circumcision is a big one. They're talking about dietary food laws. They're talking about very important ceremonial days in a calendar. And Paul, it turns out, is not introducing these converts to any of it. As a matter of fact, he's telling them that all they need to do is be baptized. That's it. So verse 2 says that in that moment, there was, quote, no small dissension that rose up. That's the Bible's code for it got ugly, right? Accusations being thrown around at each other, compromises being set forth and then rejected. Until finally, they just reach an impasse, nothing to do. And so they decide that they need to bring in an outside authority to navigate through it. So notice how they handle it. What they do is they call a council. And in the midst of that council, people come and present their arguments. And finally, Peter comes to make a ruling. What you get in verses 7 through 11 is him unpacking his argument. Take a look at that. Because what you get here is a really beautiful summary of the gospel. In verse 7, he says, look, God has always had the expansion of his people across racial and cultural lines in his plan. That's always been the idea. In verse 8 and 9, he says, and they were granted the exact same Holy Spirit that you received at Pentecost. But he gets to the crux of his argument in verse 10. Listen to what he says. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing this yoke, this heavy weight, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Therefore, he says, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just like they will. Now, look, if you think about it, I think Peter has stumbled across really the essence of the gospel there. Because what's he describing? What is that yoke that he's talking about? That yoke is the law of Moses. He says, look, we've been doing this for quite some time. We have been doing our very best to improve ourselves, to live by what God's law has wanted us to do. And where has it gotten us? We constantly complain to him in the wilderness 
uh, uh, we ended up diminishing our witness and becoming exactly like the Egyptians that we left. Oh, and by the way, we got carried off into exile and completely lost our national identity. Well done, they says. But I still think that's a powerful point because Peter is saying to them, hey, go through your cultural and personal history and answer this question. How's that going for you? Working out okay for you? Has it brought you the life you've been hoping for? He's saying, look, people, we've been down this road and we've seen that trying to live by these cultural norms has done nothing but make us miserable. But what he's also saying is, is that means therefore for religious people, you're going to feel a special sense of being frustrated. In other words, you look back at your life and interpret your history as if it was a success, but I'm trying to get you to look back and realize it was a failure. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's a necessary element of salvation. Because the bottom line is this, the law of God, Peter says, is too much for you to bear. It's one of the main reasons for giving the law in the first place was to show you that you can't keep it. So verse 11, you see his conclusion. He says, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. What's Peter saying? He says, look, the only reason why you're going to be right with God at all is if he initiates it by his grace. And you want to know how you'll know that you got it? It'll suddenly occur to you that if it came to you by grace, then it's for everybody. Which is why he finishes verse 11 by saying, just like they will. If it's by grace, we can't put up these ridiculous markers around each other. Look, here's what I want to argue with on this one. This is the only thing worth fighting about. If you look at the things that Christians have argued about and even divided over, things like baptism, uh, things like miraculous manifestations of, uh, I don't know, speaking in tongues or miracles, things like uh, uh, Christian conduct, uh, Christian liberty, use of alcohol, uh, maybe the government of the church, how much power goes to whom. There is a sense in which you can have degrees of differences on those issues. Like there's a spectrum sort of going away from you whereby you're still considered Christian. But Peter and Paul are saying that when it comes to the gospel, you can't have another view that's kind of close. <laughs> Any other gospel other than this one is no gospel at all. You get a little glimpse of this in, into Paul's mind in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says there were certain people who were coming alongside of him, which is, he's almost certainly talking about what's going on here in Acts 15. And he says they were trying to, quote, pervert the gospel of Christ. Okay, take on that little word, pervert. That word literally means to reverse, to turn inside out. He says when you monkey with this doctrine... You have messed with the essence of Christianity. There's not a spectrum here. There's no way for someone to be a little bit off on this singular point about the gospel. How can that be? Well, look for a second at that word reverse. Some of you have heard me say this before. The gospel is all about a very particular order, a very particular sort of sequence. Which is it? Is it that I'm doing my best to live as good a life as I can that will be pleasing to the Lord and on the basis of me sensing his pleasure, on the basis of how well I've done and how I've tried my best, then he accepts me as his own? Option one. Option two, though, is I despair of ever being able to have a relationship based on anything that I do because I've actually seen the law of God and all of its full effect 
but he comes to me in absolute sheer mercy and saves me. And on the basis of that grace, I seek to live a holy life. Do you see the difference? Which is it? Do we do something, open ourselves up to God, and therefore he owes me salvation? Or does he accept us by grace and therefore I live a good life? Which is it? Because Paul is saying, and what Peter is saying is, there aren't any alternatives. There's nothing in the middle of that. And what it ends up being true is that this is especially difficult for people who grow up in religious contexts. Like, I don't know, the South. Religious people have a very hard part struggle with this and are always tempted, I would argue, to reverse the gospel. Always. You can start in grace, but you can finish in a way which is the opposite of it. It's what the whole topic of Galatians is about. First time I ever heard the name uh, Richard Lovelace was through a sermon Tim Keller had done. Um, he introduced me to a book by him called uh, The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, where Lovelace talks about what has to happen or what has happened historically when revival has occurred. Does that make sense? And one of the things that Lovelace goes into at great length is that you know revival has come when people really begin to ground their assurance of salvation in God's grace. And they take joy in it. But he says, once you bring up the topic of assurance, you'll watch people divide. This is, listen to this quote from him I want to comment on. He says, religious people will draw their assurance of their acceptance from God from all kinds of things, like, number one, their sincerity. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm being honest. I really do want God in my life. Number two, their past experience of conversion. Well, you know, when I was 13, I walked the aisle at the youth uh, retreat. That's why I'm a Christian. Number three, their recent religious performance. <laughs> you ever come to church on Sunday morning with that in your, in your back pocket? How did I do this week? Can I have joy in my relationship to God this week? Number four, he says, the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. When was the last time you start to think to yourself that I knew what was wrong and I just did it? Because if I can get that out of my life, then I can feel like God really loves me. Loveless says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their spiritual achievements, listen to this, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. He says, much less even than non-Christians because of these constant bulletins that they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness that they're supposed to have. But he says, the way in which that insecurity manifests itself is number one, through pride. Isn't that interesting? Number two, through a fierce defensive assertion of their own unrighteousness. What you getting bowed up about? And number three, a defensive criticism of others. And he says, therefore, they come naturally to hate other cultural styles, even races, in order to bolster their own security, bolster their own security, and discharge suppressed anger. I feel like it's psychologizing it a bit more for you because what he's saying is if you lack assurance that's going to come out in a boiling under the surface anger that is itself the cause of racism, that is itself the cause of the divisions where whether it's on the basis of race, whether it's on the basis of some sort of cultural style that you may have grown up with, we split, we divide. 
Here's what he says. He said in the very end, he says, oftentimes these people will cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness with envy and jealousy, and all other branches of sin grow out of that fundamental insecurity. How do I know whether I'm right with him? Because here's the deal. This is the only thing worth fighting over. Because if all we have to my Christian life is, well, I have a quiet time, I read my Bible, I try to witness to somebody last week, and I go to church all the time, and I dress differently. You can do all of those things and never have a changed life. Because all those things can be motivated by insecurity and a defensive criticism of others. Phariseeism, legalism, condemnation of people that are different. All of those things show someone who has never been changed on the inside. They've reversed the gospel. And Peter's saying that's got to be stamped out. This is the essence of the gospel, and we cannot compromise on it. So, secondly, though, he says, but also compromise, though, wherever you can. Now, my guess is I have successfully triggered those who love controversy. Yeah, (laughs) you tell those people less. That's what we got. It's about grace, and you people are terrible. How's that happen? We're going to be gracious about this, right? Not very gracious. But then we get all of a sudden after Peter's speech to James' speech. James, Jesus' biological brother, stands up to make his speech. And what he says essentially is this. He's saying everything that Peter just told you is true. The gospel cannot be perverted. But you know what? We have a sticky situation here. And let's not make it worse by rubbing it in these misguided believers' faces. I love this. Because he tells them to allow these Gentile Christians into full fellowship. But If you would just avoid these four things that are especially gross to Jewish people, you know, honestly, that would be an act of kindness on our part. What James is saying is so helpful, I think, because he's saying, yes, you're right, but do not use your freedom in Christ to purposely make other people mad. In other words, we can all make concessions on the kinds of things in our life that honestly are not that big a deal. I mean, let's be honest. The gospel helps us get over our, 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 our silly little cultural norms, does it not? That aren't essential to the actual gospel. How often do we find ourselves judging others by things that are nothing more than a product of the way you grew up? But what you did was you just sanctified it and you made it the essence of holiness. This happened to me a number of years ago. We, at uh, at um, our staff training for RUF, there was a fellow who came in by the name of Howard Brown, a friend of mine who pastors a church in Charlotte, an African-American uh, pastor. For a while there, he's no longer with them, but he had an assistant pastor named Giorgio who was a white guy. And at our staff training, they were talking about how often they would have disagreements over lunch. What would you disagree about over lunch? Well, the problem was when you would set the time to meet. For the white guy, for Giorgio, he would say, well, when I said I'll meet you at noon, he meant 12 o'clock. And so he arrived very promptly at 12 o'clock. Howard, on the other hand, said when he thought of, you know, noon, he was like somewhere between 11 and 2. And they had all this controversy for the first two years of their ministry between each other because Howard kept looking over at, you know, Giorgio and was kind of like, I don't know, that guy is high strung. Why is he so moody? Meanwhile, Giorgio's looking at Howard and thinking, that guy is so rude and thoughtless, doesn't he know that we made this appointment on this time? Now, here's the question. Who was right? Ready? None of them. Neither was right. It's just the way they grew up. And whatever we sanctify, well, I don't know, maybe promptness, promptness is important. Well, good for you. Is that really something that we're going to sanctify and make essential to our unity? 
Look, the gospel's supposed to come into my defensiveness and say, look, the reason why you're defensive is probably because of an insecurity. What is it? Like, really, what is it on the inside that this is working on? Because once you get settled on who you are in Christ, once you know that I'm not saved by anything that I do, once you look and see that Jesus has set me free from ever being defined by these things, you're free to give up your freedom. Yes, you're free in Christ, but free also to give it up. The gospel means I don't have to be so defensive about my background. (laughs) Interestingly enough, this happens in the very next chapter. In Acts 16, Paul actually instructs his understudy, a guy named Timothy, to be circumcised, which is amazing. What is Paul saying? He's saying, look, I'm not going to put an offense in front of people just so I can have my way. And that's a great question for us to ask before we move to the last point. Does that spirit mark our fellowship together as a church? So don't compromise on the gospel. Secondly, though, compromise wherever you can. But thirdly, stay connected to Jesus' church. I think this is incredibly transformational. But if you zoom out to like the 30,000-foot view for a second, you can see a fascinating process. This is a group of well-meaning Christians who came to some inevitable conflict that dealt with a situation. It was a little bit theological, but it was also just a little bit about I don't know, people's approach to ministry, philosophy of ministry. And when they couldn't come to an agreement, they didn't just split the church in Antioch and go their separate ways. What did they do? They appealed to a higher court. Of course, once the appeal was made, the court rendered a decision. And I find that interesting because these are apostles, by the way. These are people who have apostolic, unique authority from Jesus, which was supernatural, we know to author the Bible, do all these miracles. And yet on this controversy, they don't render a thus saith the Lord to get through the controversy. Isn't that strange? What they did was they decided to engage in the hard work of figuring it out. Even these people. Now, why why am I going into this? Well, because oftentimes people will ask me why I am a Presbyterian. You didn't grow up this way, Les. I'm like, I know, they made me this way. It's their fault. No, that's not what I say. Why am I a Presbyterian? Most of the time when I answer that question, I refer in some regard to Acts chapter 15. Because what you see in this model here is a vision of allowing God's people to always have a court of appeal. And how much of a blessing that is. Look, you may not realize it, but Christ Press here in Oxford is part of a denomination that we know as the Presbyterian Church in America. The PCA for short. And that means a lot of things. But for our purposes today, it means that we have a place that can safeguard the way the gospel works on you. What do I mean? You've heard me say this before. This is an old Jack Miller uh, uh, definition of what is the gospel. Gospel's two things, uh, Dr. Miller used to say. On the one hand, it says you are more loved and more forgiven. Excuse me. You are more sinful and more wretched and more depraved than you could possibly imagine. That's the first part. But secondly, you are more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you could ever dare dream. And as a Christian, both of those things are true at the same time. The first part of that means that churches mess up. It means that we are not infallible people. So what does God do? You ready for this? You're not going to like this. He creates a structure, a structure of leaders that have been identified 
qualified, trained to become elders, to oversee and help God's people get through situations. Trust me, it is an infuriatingly slow process. It'll bend your brain to drive you crazy so much. But don't you see how much you need this? Because if God's people don't have something like that tangible structure, we are going to tear ourselves apart. Look, Jesus comes along to keep us whole. He's here to keep our relationships from shattering and splintering. Jesus comes along in your life to curb the worst parts of your sinful nature, to transform them. But here's the question. How does he do that? You ready for this? He does it in the church. I had somebody years ago say to me, we're looking so hard. People will say oftentimes, I'm looking for Jesus. I'm just on a quest. Let's, I just really want to find the real true Jesus. <laughs> we're looking in places that he never say he would, said he would be. Because where he manifests himself most tangibly is in a body of believing people. Just like this. Reminded me of a story that I had with some campus ministers years ago about a church somewhere away from here that had a young lady in it who, who became pregnant out of wedlock. And very reluctantly at the time, she reported to her campus minister that she went to the pastor and then sat with the elders to talk with him through the, through the whole issue. And as she was reflecting on it when she was in college and her experience, she would come back and she would say, you know something, actually, it ended up being one of the best things ever. Campus minister was like, Pray tell why. She says, well, it was because after a couple of weeks that happened, I remember one of the elders standing up at a meeting of the congregation and saying something to this effect. Hey, look, we have here someone that we want to love and to protect. She is a daughter of this church, and now she's going to have a child, and we're here to love and protect them. But so that we can avoid this becoming a topic of gossip, you need to know now that we as a leadership are on her side. And we're not going to let this become a topic of community scandal under our watch. And she said, in that moment, in the midst of my embarrassment, in the midst of my fear, in the midst of my shame, I felt so protected and so loved and cared for. Now, let's stay. <laughs> Don't get panicky. That's not a policy I'm trying to set forth. Like, we're going to publicize everything and just sort of spread out? No. But what I'm saying is, as she began to say, there was blessing from this structure of a group of people that I joined myself to in order to engage in the people of God so that it wasn't just there on a voluntary basis. Because if it's purely voluntary, I'm going to volunteer myself out. Look, here's the point. The gospel is not just you're more sinful and wretched and depraved. Yeah, there's times in which the church reminds me of that and tries to humble me through it. But you know what else? When it says that you are more loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ than you could ever dare dream, it's only going to be experienced by you in the church. Who else is going to love and accept and forgive me if it's not the people of God? And what happens in Acts chapter 15 is the first time where God's people look up and realize we have protection. We have the grace of this body that God is building. So the question that rests before us this morning is am I meaningfully involved in that? Is that something to which I can tangibly say, honestly, that's a structure which is good for me. It's frustrating. You ain't seen anything yet. Just wait until we start to make some really big decisions. <laughs> It's frustrating, but somewhere in the midst of that, you've got the Holy Spirit 
grinding, working, building up, breaking down, shepherding, cajoling, laughing with, and building the people of God as being a witness to our community and to ourselves. It's a pretty good vision, isn't it? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into that by your spirit? Give us the grace, we pray, to see with new eyes, eyes that honestly aren't able to see the things that you want us to see in our known nature. But by your Holy Spirit, we pray that we would love your church in the way in which these men did in coming to such great wisdom about how the church should go forward. Would we be that kind of place? And even for these visitors, would you take them back to home churches where they would belong and be a participant's in? So that in the midst of it, you will build your church that you promised the gates of hell would never, uh, would never uh, assault. So, Father, we ask for that grace this morning to see that. In Jesus' name, amen.